Please uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. We're going to read 1 through 30. Don't be scared. But basically, um, it, it, from last week, we saw David and Goliath. And so this is going to pick up right where we left off. And if you could just get into this story, just immerse yourself in this story, the Word of God as it is telling what is transpiring after David and Goliath, and, and put yourself in it. So let's, let's read. Please stand as we read the, uh, the Word of God. First Samuel 18. Now, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, and they were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. They have ascribed to David ten thousand, and to me they have ascribed a thousand, thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but, he, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my, not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at that time... When Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul the thing pleased him. So Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private. And tell him, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the, sons, the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, 
Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servant told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commander of the Philistines came out to battle, and often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Um, Few characters in the Bible are as sad to read about as Saul. And, and up to this point, we can see a trajectory of where Saul is headed, and it's not good. And, and you want to yell out to him, look, Saul, turn back, repent. It's not too late to find repentance in the Lord. Believe on Him. And the story of Saul seems to have started with so much promise. Here, here's just a quick highlight reel of what we've already seen in, in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel introduces him as a handsome man. In fact, not a man among the people of Israel were more handsome than he. Of course, we read later that God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. Then it says in 1 Samuel 10 that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And this wasn't the Spirit of God, a regenerative spirit that gives faith. It was a Uh, an empowerment of special abilities given to Saul, kind of like we see with Samson. But then things turn dark. And in 1 Samuel 13, we see that Saul is in a bind with the Philistines. His back is against the wall. And, you know, instead of crying out to the Lord, God, help me, help me, I believe in you, I trust in you. What did Saul do? He unlawfully sacrifices to the Lord. I'm going to take matters into my own hands is his motto. I'm going to uh, disobey because it calls for it. The situation calls for it. And Saul's actions lead to a rejection of his kingdomly line. And what I want you to pick up on today is that that means Jonathan will not be king. So why doesn't Saul repent? Why doesn't Saul confess his wrongdoing? Why doesn't he believe in the Lord who is slow to anger and quick to mercy? In in 1 Samuel 15, we again see Saul's flagrant disobedience with the Amalekites. The Lord said, devote these wicked people to destruction. That's what he commanded Saul to do. And what does Saul do? He takes the best of his spoils and he keeps the king as his trophy. And he says, look, we're going to sacrifice these spoils to the Lord. And Samuel shows up and he says, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What are sacrifices, Saul, if your heart is not in the right place? Think, think of Cain and Abel. So Samuel says, God has now rejected you from being king. 
So not only is his kingly line rejected, he's been rejected as, as king. And Saul seems like it could be he seems like he could be in a state of true repentance with what he says next. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed against the commandments of the Lord. So, so far, so good. But then he says, I have sinned, yet honor me, honor me, before the elders. And, and what's important to note is that non-Christians can experience true grief for their sins. Conviction of sin does not prove or disprove genuine saving faith. You see, for Saul, it's all about him. It's all about his greatness, his name, his selfish ambition. It's not about believing God and obeying him. And so God rejects Saul as king, and he has Samuel go, and he has, an, uh, has him anoint a shepherd boy who has, in, who has faith in Yahweh, who believes in the promises of God. This shepherd boy is David. And last week, as David Cole brought us the word, we came to David and Goliath. And Goliath is blaspheming and he's mocking the one true God of Israel. And the king of Israel, the one who is the earthly head of God's covenant community, what is he doing? He is cowering in fear. And it's Saul's unbelief. His unbelief is on full display. He didn't believe in the promises of God. And yet... He was leading God's people as king. Now, friends, unbelief in God is at the very root of why Saul cowers in fear, acts in disobedience, and is worried more about his self-preservation. He isn't the least bit interested in making the name of God great and giving glory to Yahweh in the sight of the wicked. He's only worried about his own kingdom, his own glory, and we can clearly see where that leads in today's passage. From the sins of Adam and Eve... To the mocking of a Philistine giant, you see unbelief at the root of all sin. You can be a regular church attender. You can be in places of honor within the church, even the pastor or the elders or deacons. You can be a good moral person in your mind, and if you fail to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and place your full faith and trust in Him, you're as lost as Saul was. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you have genuine saving faith in Christ, and by that I mean you have the right knowledge of Jesus Christ, you're not believing in a Mormon Jesus, you're not believing in a Muslim Jesus, you're believing in the Jesus of Scripture alone, and you believe that this is true, and then you place your full faith and trust in Him, that is saving faith. And you are united to Christ. And the distinguishing marks of saving faith, the distinguishing marks, are repentance, a deep and abiding love for God, a desire to see God glorified, magnified, worshipped, because what He has done for us, that while we were still sinners, God sent His only Son to die for us. And as the sacrificial lamb, He atoned for our sins so that nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. And sadly, 
however, the, the sin of unbelief not only plagues non-Christians, but doubt in the truths of Scripture plague at times believers. Christians can be plagued by doubts and struggles with how Scripture plays out practically in our lives. So I have a few questions about what we believe. Do we live like we believe in the truth of Scripture? Or do we live so often like Saul? Peter wavered on the high seas and began drowning because he took his sight off his Lord and he began to doubt. Jonah traveled the other direction thinking he could escape God's plan for him. He doubted God's sovereignty and power. What about us? What are we believing? In Hebrews 3, 12-13, it says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive. Unbelief in God's Word is dangerous. If when you are alone, I use that in quotations, if when you are alone and nobody's around, you open your computer browser to look at pornography, what is that saying about your belief in an omnipresent God? That if you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a new creation. That God says the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sexual sin is against the body. If this is you, examine your heart. For what does it say about what you believe? Repent, don't delay. Bring it into the light with godly accountability. Confess your sins and lay aside the weight of sin. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does what we are watching or reading say about our belief? In Philippians 4.8, it says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we run to alcohol or food for our comfort and happiness, what is that saying about our belief in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and that we are to keep ourselves from idols? Do you believe your value is linked to your job or what you earn, what you make, what you drive? Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. It does not. You see, it's easy to come to church and worship on Sunday and then live the rest of the week as God does not exist in our lives. We need to do as the man who cried out in, to Jesus in Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. For Saul, it was clearly shown he did not believe in the promises of God. He refused to acknowledge that he was in desperate need of a Savior and that what he needed was to be saved from his desires and passions waging war against him. The result of unbelief in God for Saul and the rejection of the lordship of God over his life, what did it manifest in? It manifested in pride. It manifested in jealousy, anger, hatred. And we can learn here something from Saul as well. Selfish ambition is the same thing Christians struggle with. In our flesh, we struggle with the same things. But as we see, those in Christ have another option. We have an alternative as Christians to the bondage of self. 
So, so returning to 1 Samuel 18, David has killed Goliath. He is now the national uh, hero of Israel. He did what Saul was unwilling to do, to trust in God and fight like God was the one true God because he is. And after David's victory, Saul is listening to the people and they're singing and they're saying, Saul has struck down thousands, David his ten thousands. And you can almost see Saul leaning in to hear the crowd, perhaps with a smile on his face as he heard his name. Saul has struck down thousands, and he says, I love it. I love it. They're singing about me. And then David is ten thousands. I hate this. What is that? David, his tens of thousands? Are you kidding me? You know what this reminds me of is uh, Robin Hood. You know the, uh, the cartoon Disney character, the fox Robin Hood? Don't tell me I'm the only adult that has been subjected to this for the last couple years. Um, and, and Prince John comes in fuming because of Robin Hood, uh, and he's filled with jealousy and rage because all the people are singing. And then his right-hand man, his snake, is singing, and he's singing, you know, something along the lines of, uh, too late to be known as John the first. He's sure to be known as John the worst. And he's filled with anger. And Saul is doing the same thing. He's hearing these people sing, and what is, what is he doing? He is filled with jealousy towards David. And in our flesh, that is exactly how we'd expect to act. Have you ever been at work and your boss is singing the praises of another colleague and your first inclination is one of anger and jealousy? Why aren't my praises being sung? How about when someone gets credit for your work and then never corrects the misunderstanding? Oh, that is infuriating. If you're walking in your flesh. Then there's Facebook. What have you wrought on us, Zuckerberg? What have you wrought? Facebook, where we see the perfect families, the perfect vacations, the perfect cup of chai latte. And our jealousy rises up. We can actually wish that their vacation would get rained out like with a tropical storm or something. <laughs> or that you could dislike a photo anonymously. Or that they would spill that chai latte all over their car. Sad places the flesh wants to take us, and, and jealousy breeds misery. It says, Saul eyed David, and he was consumed by him. That's what jealousy does. It consumes us. Jealousy robs us of joy. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Saul's anger manifests into hatred which manifested into murderous desires for Saul. He wanted David dead. So Saul, in desperation, hatches a scheme. He says, I'll tell you what, David, you can marry my second daughter, but all you have to do is bring me a hundred foreskins of Philistines. And Saul is doing the math here. He's laughing to himself because he thinks that surely one of those Philistines won't be thrilled about the whole I'm coming for your foreskin thing and will take David out before he gets to them. So Saul probably is hanging out all smug, you know, thinking about David going after this, and he hears a knock on the door. Who is it? It's David. He opens the door. I'm, I'm speculating. What is that? It's 200 foreskins for my king. And, and the look on Saul's face must have been priceless as he's looking at what David has brought him. 
And he's realizing he did it. He's alive. Go, David, take my wife. Go. And you know, it's interesting what Saul's response is. He knew the Lord was with David, and he was even more afraid. This is a very sad picture of reality for a life apart from God. It's a life of hollow self-ambition that only leads to eternity apart from God under God's just wrath. What Saul is experiencing is not the right fear of God, but a dread fear. But there are, there's an alternative to this. There are two other characters to briefly point to. There is Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is a mighty warrior who is brave and fitting to be king. And it also shows him to be a great man of faith in God. And Jonathan trusted in the Lord. He didn't presume to know the mind of the Lord, but he trusted him. And, and it was no matter where it led. He understood that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And from an earthly perspective, we could say, Jonathan's story, wow, what a tragedy. Here was a magnificent leader who was deprived of his throne. That's not fair. That's unjust. And we often do this with our lives, and I think millennials really do this. It's our right to have a six-figure job. It's our right to be happy. It's our right to be healthy. When things don't go our way and God has a different plan for our life, it can manifest in anger and frustration and discouragement. Why doesn't God work the way we see fit? But when we acknowledge it is God who is the potter and not us, like Romans 9.20, it says this, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? It is God who sovereignly ordains all things to come to pass, not us. It is God who works all things for our good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. His. You know, we all want to do something great for God, I believe, and yet what we see time and time again is that God calls people, not because they're great, but because it pleases him to simply walk in obedience. And we can step back and see Jonathan's life as a wonderful life lived in humble obedience to God. Obedience to God matters far more than earthly vocational achievement or status. And Jonathan's response isn't one of anger or malice or discontent. It's not my will, but your will, O God. That's his attitude. He acknowledges that David is God's choice to be the next king. It's not Jonathan's choice, but God's. And so what does he do? In his stunning act of humility, he gives David his robe. He gives David his sword. This is the type of thing that people get killed over. You know, I, that guy, he thinks he's going to be king. I am going to kill him. I am in line to be king. And yet, Jonathan is giving this over to David and he knits his heart to David and he makes a covenant with him. And we see the community of Christ in Jonathan and David. A community where, as Romans 12 says, we are to love one another with brotherly affection outdoing one another in showing honor. Jonathan wasn't worried about his status. He wasn't driven by selfish ambition. He understood that greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for friends. He walked in humility and he trusted God. And what was the result? He found an incredible friendship in David. What if this was our church? What if this was Redeemer? 
doing nothing of selfish ambition or because we wanted credit, but loving one another, we serve each other as Christ calls us to. Now, finally, we come to David. And we might think, we might think that when God chooses you and you're the Lord's anointed, that things become easy. That's not so. As soon as David was anointed by God, he was thrown into one trial after another. And yet David faithfully served God and showed humility and honor to Saul as king. David respected Saul because he was God's chosen, and it wasn't David's place to remove him. So David served faithfully, playing his musical instruments before a king who wanted to kill him, throwing spears at him on regular occasions. But you know, God's plans can never be stopped or halted. David was God's anointed, and David was going to be the next king. It didn't matter about Saul's futile efforts. He was God's chosen. Isaiah 14.7 says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed who can thwart him. His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? It's a scary world out there. And in a time when Christians are, more are actually the most persecuted religion on the face of the earth, at a time where we see Christians being martyred daily for their faith in places like Nigeria and the Middle East, where the United States is quickly becoming more hostile to Christianity, just see a, a, a bill going through the California legislature right now which would effectively gut Christian education in that state. This is, a, this is becoming quite hostile. Do we as Christians, do we as Christians live like Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will never prevail against her? Do we trust in the promises of God like David? You know, Matthew 10, 28 says this, and this is a powerful, powerful verse. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The greatest thing to fear is not fear itself. It's the just, righteous wrath of God. And guys, this is the gospel. This is where the gospel breaks through, where we realize and we believe in a gospel that says, you know, we have a great atoner. We have the perfect sacrifice that came in our place. And His righteousness, because of His death and resurrection, are now our right, is now our righteousness. And we have nothing to fear. For as David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Christ, we truly have nothing to fear. And so John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He's telling us we will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. David was God's anointed. And God's plans could not be thwarted. You know, it's uh, remarkable that David recognized his weaknesses. David wasn't driven by selfish ambition, but he uh, was driven 
to make Yahweh's name great. And for the battle cry, he cried this very telling statement. For the battle is the Lord's. David knew his strength was not in, him, in himself, but from the Lord. We will see later in 1 Samuel, or as we move forward, or, or go through, um, uh, I believe, possibly 2 Samuel, um, that David was a man who sinned. He wasn't always selfless. He had a mighty flesh to contend with. And just like Saul sent David into the Philistines to be killed, David sent a man into battle whose wife he had slept with, only this time the murderous plan worked. David understood that he was not righteous in himself. David needed a Savior just like you and I need a Savior. That's why he says in Psalms 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. David had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. My friends, in a hundred years, we will all be dead except my mother. And she drinks spinach to stay healthy. And who wants to do that? All of our trials, all of our trials, all of our trials and tribulations will be of no concern. But what, but whom we put our trust in now matters for eternity. Jesus Christ changes everything. Fear not and believe is what Jesus says. Throw off the weight of self-indulgence. Throw off the weight of selfish ambition. Fight in the spirit the sin of unbelief and pick up your cross daily and follow Christ so that we might be able to say like David in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. That we can have life in Jesus Christ and that, Father, through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, we can be united to You. And, Lord, we can live. And we can delight in You and faithfully obey, knowing that eternity awaits us in Your presence. And, Father, we pray that we would be faithful to You. We pray that we would not fear over our jobs, over money, over our loss of work, over loss of life, over our health. But Father, we would cling to Your promises and we would trust You and believe. And we thank, the, thank You in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.